morning, St. Paul's Church. Thank you so much for being with us again, uh, now for our third live stream service. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Once again, Keith and I are alone in the church office, and we wish very much that you could all be here as well, um, but we're going to make the best of it. So let's begin with some words from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this is from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. Let's pray. Lord, during times like these, we are reminded that we need a source of hope that is uh, eternal, uh, something that is beyond what the world can provide for us. And Lord, as we come together this morning in this uh, virtual service, we recognize that you are our eternal rock. You are our refuge. Uh, you are our hope in the midst of uncertainty and impermanence. Um, and we, we worship and praise you this morning, Lord. Uh, we pray that as we meet right now, that you would encourage us, uh, that you would edify us, um, that you would uh, use this time, Lord, um, to help us to think, think well about the situation that we are in and to be encouraged by our fellowship with one another, even though uh, we can't be physically together. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you guys are holding up okay as our period of social distancing has uh, extended now. Uh, past two weeks, um, and of course with no clear end in sight. So uh, I pray that you guys are managing to find some kind of new normal in the midst of what is obviously a very abnormal situation. I know that I personally am still adjusting, uh, so I'm sure many of you are as well. So like last week, I have decided that we are going to hold off on returning to the book of Revelation. Uh, we are going to do that when the time is right, but right now, it still doesn't feel to me like the time is right. Uh, right now, it feels like uh, we need to focus specifically on this coronavirus outbreak and how scripture should influence our perspective on what's happening. Now, as we in the church face this situation, how we think is important, right? What we do, obviously, is important, but how we think is very important, too, because how we think influences what we do. And there are several topics that if we in the church are going to uh, think wisely uh, right now, um, we need to consider very carefully how we're thinking about them. Um, if we don't think well about them, then that's going to have harmful consequences. And the three topics that I want us to consider this morning, the three topics where I want us to think about how we think about them, are science, individualism, and God's punishment. Science, individualism, and God's punishment. So I apologize in advance that this sermon is going to be a little all over the place, uh, but I think all three of these topics are very relevant right now, and uh, I don't want to expand any one of them to a whole message. I think we can cover all three of them just in this one uh, sermon. So that's what we're going to do. So, first... Science. Uh, the church has uh, kind of a complicated relationship with science. 
especially the church in America, we have a reputation for being kind of skeptical about the trustworthiness of science. And so, you know, when scientists who study infectious disease around the world start warning us about the danger of something like coronavirus, there's a large number of Christians whose instinct, first instinct, is to doubt or dismiss that warning. For example, uh, two weeks ago, a pastor in Louisiana insisted on holding a worship service. Um, I'm sure there are many uh, pastors like him throughout the country who are doing similar things. And uh, he was holding a worship service that had hundreds of people going to it, uh, despite an order from the governor not to have groups of people meeting uh, that were over 50. And when he was asked about this decision, he said, I feel, and I want us to notice that's an interesting choice of words. He said, I feel that the COVID-19 scare is politically motivated. I feel that the COVID-19 scare is politi politically motivated. <clears throat> so let's ask ourselves, now why might he feel that way? Well, I'm sure there's several contributing factors but the only way that he can feel that confidently is if he doesn't have much, much trust in science or in scientists. Uh, because the vast majority of epidemiologists, meaning people who study infectious diseases, people around the world who study infectious diseases and how to reduce their spread, the vast majority of those people have been sounding the alarm about coronavirus for quite a while now. But rather than listening to them, this pastor assumes that the measures being taken to stop coronavirus are all politically motivated, right? Not uh, motivated by a realistic concern based on observation and data, impartial observation, but motivated by politics. That's his assumption. So clearly he's very skeptical about science and scientists. Uh, and obviously he's not alone in his skepticism. There are many people in the church who uh, feel similarly. So the question I want us to ask is, is that skepticism wise? Should that kind of skepticism be common in the church? And I don't think it should. And I say that for at least two reasons. There's more than two reasons, but I want to emphasize two this morning. So the first reason is because we should be humble. If there is one virtue that keeps being affirmed over and over and over again throughout Scripture, it is humility. If I were to start quoting verses at you that support that, I wouldn't even know where to start because there's so many of them. And what I want us to notice is that when we are quick to dismiss the warnings of people who study uh, a particular area, like infectious diseases, when we are quick to dismiss those people because we feel a certain way, there is an arrogance in that, a lack of humility. We have to recognize none of us is capable of knowing and doing everything, right? That should go without saying, but that's the truth. And that's why God leads us to different vocations, right? Some people are called to build bridges and buildings. Some people are called to program computers. Uh, some people are called to be pastors and teachers, and some people are called to study infectious diseases. 
And we all need the humility to listen to people when they're speaking in their field of expertise, when they're speaking in the vocation that God has called them to. You know, if I am a person of humility, I should not assume that I know more about building bridges than an engineer. And I shouldn't assume that I know more about infectious diseases and how dangerous they are and how likely they are to spread than an epidemiologist, right? How could I know more than an epidemiologist about that sort of thing? I don't have enough time to figure that out, which is why in humility, I need to listen to somebody who has given their life to studying that. So <clears throat> humility should lead us to take very seriously uh, what scientists have to say um, about the things that they study. Now, a qualifier. That doesn't mean that they're always right. That doesn't mean that we should just uncritically accept everything, right? But we should have the humility to take what they have to say seriously. And if we disagree, it shouldn't just be because of a feeling that we have, right? It should be for a very good reason. So, that's the first reason that we in the church should be willing to take science seriously, because of humility, right? Second reason is because science makes sense in a biblical view of the world. Science makes sense in a biblical view of the world. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. If what the Bible tells us about God and creation and humanity is true, then it would make sense that science is an effective tool. Now, why do I say that? Well, the book of Genesis tells us that God created a world of form and order. It says that he worked with these waters of chaos and that he formed and shaped them into the orderly world that we have uh, before us now. And it also tells us that he created human beings uniquely to rule over the rest of creation. So consider those two things. He's made an ordered world and he's called human beings to rule over it. And those two facts uh, support the idea that we would be able to do science and that it would be fairly effective, right? Because since we're made to rule over the world, we have these powers of observation where we can observe the form and order that God has created, and then we can utilize what we observe um, in order to rule over our surroundings, to rule over nature uh, to, some, to some extent. Um, so the ability to do science and for it to be effective is something that we would expect in a biblical view of the world. Now, I want to make a few qualifications. Okay, let me repeat again. I'm not saying that scientists are always right and that we should never think critically uh, about what they have to say. And I'm also definitely not saying that miracles don't happen. You know, some people who practice science want to dismiss all miraculous claims. Um, and I don't think they should do that. That's actually a position taken from philosophy, not from science. Science is the practice of observing the world and recognizing the way it, it ordinarily works, right? But whether or not miracles are possible, times where uh, there are suspensions to those ordinary rules, that's a philosophical topic, okay? Not a scientific one. Um, and the Bible is clear that God is more powerful, his will is more powerful 
than the ordinary natural laws that he's created. And if he ever wants to suspend them, uh, he's fully within his right to do that. And the Bible records special times where, where he has done that. So, I'm not saying that there aren't miracles. But the very fact that we call them miracles is evidence that most of the time, there is a predict predictable, ordered way to the way that God's creation operates. And we are able to observe that and then use our observations to rule over uh, creation and fulfill uh, that God-given calling that God has given us. So, we should not be people who are dismissive or unusually skeptical uh, about science. And during this coronavirus epidemic, I encourage us as the church to listen humbly to what people have to, stay, to say who study that kind of thing. Okay? Now, one more qualification about science. It can't tell us everything. Right? There's a saying, science can teach us how to build a bomb, but it can't tell us whether or not it is right to build a bomb. Um, Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But science, science can't say one way or the other whether we should do that or not, right? Science doesn't have anything to say about what we value. It can only tell us how things tend to work, right? Uh, so we need, we need both. Uh, but what science can help us to do is to fulfill our value of loving our neighbor. It can aid us in doing that, right? Because science can help us to understand what's going to help spread this virus and what's not, and how serious it is, right? And then we can take that information, put it into practice in the goal of loving our neighbors well. Okay, so that's how I want us to think about science. The second topic I want us to think about, how we think about this morning, is individualism. Individualism. Our culture in America tends to be a very individualistic culture. And what that means is that we tend to value things like independence, self-reliance, liberty, liberty to do as we please. And so, in a situation like this, when governors start telling us that we should shelter in our homes, um, that can make some of us very uncomfortable because we feel like our individual liberties are in danger. And I just want to say, I, I can understand that fear, and I respect the concern for the preservation of individual liberties. You know, I'm thankful that uh, I'm able to live in a country where individual liberties are valued. But I want to encourage us to recognize uh, as important as individual liberty is, that part of the nature of reality is that we are all connected, right? Uh, our individual actions affect one another, whether we like it or not. This interconnected nature to reality is an inescapable truth about the world that God has made. This is the way that God has created things to be. You know, if a company down the road uses its individual freedom to throw toxic waste into a river, uh, that is going to affect the liberties of the people who live along that river, right? And in a similar way, if during a pandemic, uh, people exercise their freedom by gathering in crowds, uh, that is going to affect 
uh, people because the virus is going to spread. And anyone who gets sick, that's influencing their individual liberties, right? Because we're all connected. We can't just think individually. And the Bible encourages us to recognize this connected nature of reality. You know, for example, those of us who are, who are part of the church, right? We're not supposed to just think our, of ourselves as uh, individuals in a relationship with God, just on our, on our lonesome, right? We're supposed to think of ourselves as part of the body of Christ, right? As, as parts of a much larger body. And that body is interconnected, and we need each other. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, starting in verse 14, he says, Now the body of Christ is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So what this is saying is that God has designed us in the church to need each other, right? Members of the church are not supposed to be rugged individualists, right? That's absurd. That's like an ear trying to be a whole person. That doesn't work. So God wants us to recognize our connectedness and learn to work together. And even outside of the church, the body of Christ, God also wants us to recognize our connectedness with the, the broader society, right? That's why the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because in that command, there is a recognition that how you use your individual liberty is going to affect your neighbor. So that needs to be a priority for you. You need to remember to love your neighbor as yourself. So I encourage you, even if you are worried right now about how this situation might threaten your individual liberty, remember the reality, the inescapable reality of connectedness in this world that God has made. Our actions affect one another, especially in a pandemic. That is always true, but in a pandemic, that reality is manifested in an uh, especially powerful way. Your actions will affect your neighbors, and your neighbors' actions will affect you. So live accordingly, okay? Use your treasured liberty to love your neighbor. Use your freedom to bless others, okay? Not just to promote your individual rights. All right, one final topic that I want us to think about this morning, or to think about how we think about it, is God's punishment. God's punishment. One of the things that I've heard some Christians declaring uh, is that this outbreak is God's punishment on people for their disobedience. Now, that raises the question, is that the way that we should be thinking about this virus? Is that the way that we should be talking about it? And you know what? That's a very tough question to answer. You know, on the one hand, it is true that in Scripture there are examples of God uh, punishing people for their rebellion, for their, for their sin. Uh, but 
Let's think about this for a moment. In this case, one of the troubling things about that view is the punishment would be falling primarily on those who are elderly and those who have health issues, those who are immunocompromised. And I'm pretty sure there's no strong correlation between the relative sinfulness of a person and whether or not they are elderly or you know, immunocompromised. And so we need to be very careful about making these kinds of declarations, you know, especially when we consider how they might be perceived by the people in our society who are the most vulnerable uh, to this illness. So instead of making those kinds of declarations, uh, I want to encourage us to keep two passages in mind, two passages from the New Testament. Uh, so let's look at the first one. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Uh, so I'll give you a minute to turn there. Luke 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too, all will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So. This passage refers to two incidents from history that we don't know very much about, uh, although clearly Jesus' audience were familiar with them. And both of them were incidents where something tragic happened and people unexpectedly lost their lives. Uh, in the first example, first incident, uh, Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, had several people from Galilee killed. And it appears that he had them killed when they were worshiping in the temple because it says that their blood mixed uh, with the blood of the sacrifices. So this was a horrible event. Uh, this was a, a, a terrible moment of injustice where a political leader uh, had people killed when they were worshiping, basically when they were in church. And then the second incident Jesus brings up is the falling of the Tower of Siloam. Uh, again, not an event that we know a lot about, but it appears that this tower just collapsed, probably due to um, its age or poor design, and when it fell, it killed 18 people. And what Jesus says about the victims in each of these tragedies is, don't assume that they were worse sinners than anybody else. Don't assume that they were worse sinners than anybody else. In those days, it was a common assumption that if tragedy befell you and you had a premature death, then clearly you had done something exceptionally wrong. You know, God had looked upon your excess uh, sinfulness, your unusual degree of sinfulness, and he had decided to withdraw his protection. It was a very common way of thinking. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Don't think about it that way. The world right now is not a place where very righteous people are automatically rewarded and very wicked people are punished. You know, if a tower falls on people, that doesn't mean those people were especially sinful. It might just mean that unfortunately they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
And if that's true, it's also true that if someone gets sick or dies from coronavirus, that doesn't mean that they are especially sinful either. Uh, and so my advice is not to go around saying, this is a punishment from God. Instead, consider what Jesus says here, right? He says, don't you realize that unless you repent, you too will perish. The correct response to a tragedy, whether it's a pandemic or a tower collapsing, is not to make judgments about the victims of that tragedy. Okay, the correct response to a tragedy is not to make judgments about the victims of that tragedy. But the correct response is to remember, I need to be right with God. I need to be ready to stand before, before him. Because, you know, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if tomorrow a tower is going to fall on me like a tower fell on those people. You know, I don't know for sure. And, and, and the correct response to a, a tragedy is to recognize the reality that a lot of the time we try to suppress, which is that all of us are mortal, all of us are fragile, and all of us will need to give an accounting uh, before God. And so, rather than making judgments, we should say, How do, what do I need to do to be right in my relationship with God and to be ready uh, to meet Him? You know, have we acknowledged our sin and our need for God's grace? Have we accepted Jesus as Lord over our lives? Have we uh, received the forgiveness that he offers? If we haven't, we need to repent. And what it means to repent is just to, to change our minds about the way that we think uh, about God and about our relationship to him. And of course, when we change the way we think, it also has... Uh, implications for the way we live, of course. Um, so, rather than going around declaring God's punishment, the first thing we need to do is allow this situation to lead us to personal repentance. Personal repentance. Let this situation inspire you to turn to God, to turn from sin. You know, let it inspire you to make changes in your life, maybe changes that you keep putting off and putting off. Uh, Allow this moment to be the kick in the pants that you need to start taking your relationship with God a little bit more seriously. To, um, you know, to, to recognize your own fragility, your own mortality, uh, and your need for a hope that transcends this world. The other passage that I want us to consider when it comes to the subject of God's judgment is John 9, 1-5. And this one has some similarity uh, to the one that we just looked at. John 9, 1 through 5. I'll give you a moment to turn there. This is a passage that I really appreciate. It says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So once again, in this story, we see this assumption that the disciples have that if somebody has a, you know, a exceptional affliction or is enduring some kind of uh, uh, unique suffering, 
that person must be guilty of exceptional sin. Right? A man is blind, so the disciples assume either his parents or he uh, did something really bad. Right? And once again, like in the last passage, Jesus corrects that thinking. Only this time, he, he adds something a little bit different uh, than what he said last time. He's not contradicting what he said before, but he's uh, encouraging us to think about things from another angle. Right? He says, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then, uh, we didn't read this far, but if you go on to read in the story, what happens is Jesus heals this man of his blindness. And I love this story because what Jesus is encouraging his disciples to do is to see in tragedy an opportunity. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to see in tragedy an opportunity, and specifically an opportunity for God to work. So when we see a tragic situation, uh, our, our first thought shouldn't be, who sinned? Right? Our first thought should be, how can God work through me in order to bring healing and redemption in this moment? So, again, rather than going around saying, God's punishing people through this coronavirus, we should be asking ourselves, how can the church rise up to demonstrate the goodness of God in this time? You know, what is the opportunity in this tragedy? How can uh, my family embody the love of Christ in these circumstances? Let's take this down from a high level to something uh, a little bit more immediately practical. You know, some of you are stuck right home, st stuck home right now, excuse me, and you're getting a little antsy. And you might be thinking, okay, who sinned that we're in this position right now? And rather than asking that question, I encourage you to ask, how can God work through this unique time when we're all stuck at home? You know, what is the opportunity in this unexpected, disruptive event? You know, how can we as a family improve our communication, um, develop stronger relationships? How can we learn how to move through a difficult circumstance together to prepare for whatever else might be ahead in life? There are opportunities in this tragedy. And you know what? I actually suspect that a time will come uh, down the road where a lot of us will look back on this time of quarantine and actually feel some nostalgia for it. And I don't say that in order to diminish the seriousness of what's going on or you know, um, the terrible aspects of it. Um, but I do think that because there are opportunities in this strange time, some of us will look back on that unique time, and, and we'll have some, some feelings of, you know what, there was good in that, you know? And there were certain aspects of that that I kind of like to return to. Um, I'm not claiming to speak prophetically, but I think that might happen. And so let's, let's try to make the most of the opportunity uh, that, that we're being faced with right now. So, uh, again, three things that we want to think about well. Science, individualism, and God's punishment. Okay, let's think well about these things. Let's think biblically about these things. Um, let's let Jesus guide our thinking on these things. Amen? Amen.